Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Nick Fanciulli is part of a generation of DJs who got their break by handing a demo tape to a club owner. But Fanciulli's rise to become an internationally respected DJ and producer really stands out when you consider that the club in question wasn't in a dance music hub like London or Berlin, but in Maidstone a small town in the southeast of England. As a resident at club class, Fanciulli played with some of the best DJs in the world, and he formed studio partnerships with guys like Andy Chatterley that would go on to define his production career. In fact, collaboration has been a recurring feature in Fanciulli's success. He started to save records with his brother Mark, and together they've overseen a prolific 10 years that's featured releases from the likes of Mark Broom, DJ Rolando, and Andrea Oliva. There was One on One, the popular DJ partnership he formed with James Abila, that toured the world. He spent time in the studio with guys like Steve Mack, Stacey Pullen and Gary Beck, and most recently he hooked up with Joris Vaughan to start La Familia, with the pair playing and programming a string of dates at Ushuaia and Ibiza. But whatever Fanciulli has achieved over the years, all roads lead back to Maidstone. Fanciulli still lives in the town, and when we sat down to chat in London recently, he told me about The Social, a boutique festival he runs annually in Maidstone, with the aim of bringing world-class music to the town. anybody who's been following your career down the years, Maidstone, the town you grew up in, has kind of become synonymous with your name, particularly the party uh, club class. Now, I've never been to Maidstone. My kind of impression of it is it's a sort of small to mid-sized town of about, I don't know, like 100,000 people down in Kent. So what I really want to ask you firstly is how the town of Maidstone kind of became a hotspot for dance music. Like what's the what's the story there? Well I think it's more about the county Kent, you know, Maidstone's in Kent and a lot of the uh, early day raves, the M25 raves were outside, were in Kent. You had things like World Dance down there at Lid Water Sports and around Maidstone, not actually in the centre. We had a really big drum and bass scene with a night called Pure Science, which was, I think before Fabric opened, was the longest weekly drum and bass night outside of London or inside. Of, it, there, was, there was some statistic. It was, you know, there was a really good drum and bass scene in, in, in Mason and in Kent. And then Club Class started, which was uh, started by uh, two people called Greg and Serge. I think it was started originally in Brighton and then it then eventually ended up in Maidstone at a club called Atomics. It's where I sort of cut my teeth into dance music, going to listen to people like Jim Masters, Shades of Rhythm, Cole Cox, Sasha and Digweed. And for me, growing up in Maidstone, it was a bit like, if you're a Chelsea fan and you want to play for Chelsea, this is my home club, I want to play for this club. So I used to drop mixtapes into Serge, the promoter, and basically just push him to say, I really want to play for you, I really want to play for you. And one time uh, he was trying to get hold of me, but where I was giving the mixtapes in so quickly, I wasn't writing information on the mixtapes. So he said when he finally got hold of me, he was spending three or four weeks trying to find how it was, asking other people in the club, have you seen Nick? You know, do you know who he is? You know, he's this guy that's giving me tapes. And eventually we caught up and uh, the relationship happened with Club Class and myself. Who were some of the early people that you would see there? Uh, Sasha and Digweed. Cole Cox, Shades of Rhythm, and then a lot of UK DJs like uh, Jeremy Healy and Alistair Whitehead. Grand Park used to bring the Hacienda Night down there as well. So a real variation of music. And I think that's what inspired me. You know, one week it would be trance, one week, week it would be techno, yeah. one week it would be the early days of Deep House when it was actually, you know, the, very deep. And uh, yeah, and that's, uh, there was a lot of inspiration. And also I used to go to the drum and bass night quite a lot. I was a big fan of like LTJ Bookham, DJ Zinc. So I had a real wide spectrum of, you know, electronic music coming through the town and I got to listen to it. 
How easy was it to get a crowd in a sort of smallish town like Maidstone excited about the music that you were talking about? Did it all go across well? Were all the parties well attended? I think back to the stage where le less is more, there was there was less nights doing these sort of things where now you can go to every corner or every pub and they're playing dance music. At that time, pubs were pubs and you know you used to drink to 11 and then you went to a nightclub from 11 till 3. Nowadays, you go into a ZZ's or a Pizza Express and they've got a DJ in it, you know, so it, it was a, a destination. And, and Atomics was a huge warehouse. It was raw as you like, and it had a great sound system and a great lighting system for the late 90s. It was perfect to go and see your favorite acts. And, and I think that's what it was. It was, it was, there wasn't that many things going on. And I think that's what drew the people to go and see it. And it wasn't, it wasn't very overground at the time. It was still very underground. It was still very, you know, you go to Atomics and and it'd be the case of, you know, it was it wasn't overground music. It was very it was very niche at the time. So thinking about those early mixtapes that you were dropping into the club, mm. were the particular DJs that you feel that you were taking cues from? Like where would you kind of place the style that you were sort of operating within? Well, I grew up into indie music and bands like the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays, Charlatans. And then it wasn't until like ninety five where one of my friend's brothers played us an Underworld album and then it went to Chemical Brothers. So it was a transition between indie to electronic music, but gradually, not straight into the DJ world. Um, and I was playing drums in a band at the time, uh, just when I was leaving school. And I was like, yeah, electronic music's okay. You know, and then I started listening to Underworld and I was like, I understand it. It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a reference between indie and, and dance. And, and then I started listening to uh, people like Francois K and Laurent Garnier. And the spectrum of music they was playing it was so wide. It, I, I loved it, you know. And then a DJ that really hit home with me was someone called Lee Burridge. It was when I was record shopping at the time. I uh, I was shopping in Maidstone, and then I felt I needed to go to London to find better records and, and more upfront stuff. Because by the time the records got to Kent, most of the London shops have taken them. And Lee had just come back from Hong Kong, and he was brought back, I think, at the time by Craig Richards to start this new night called Tyrant. And Lee was selling me records and we had a really good relationship. You know, we were hanging out. I used to drive to his shows in Nottingham. And he was the one that I think I really developed the sound that I wanted to be. You was know, that when it was at the bomb? At the bombing Nottingham, yeah. Okay. yeah. So we used to spend countless nights with him. And it's such a great story because I he went off touring. He was a huge DJ at the time. I didn't see him for like months on end. And then I remember like five years later, I think we both ended up in Chicago and I was warming up for him. The thing with Lee, I loved his personality, his passion, his happiness. Uh, he wasn't afraid to drop certain records. So. You worked at a record shop yourself for a while, is that right? Yeah, I worked in, um, originally one was called Tart Records, which was run by one of the influences for me in Maidstone, a DJ called Rob Cockerton, who really uh, used to inspire me, you know, the local hero, you know, who would go off, he'd, you know, he never, he never broke it into really into the international scene, but he was one of the most solid DJs I'd ever seen and 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 I used to work in his record shop part-time and then eventually when I got made redundant from my insurance job which was sort of like a saving grace really I uh, went to work for Eddie Locke and Owen Ingram at Plastic Surgery which at the time was a cool cut shop which was you know you mean you got really good records at the time and and yeah and it was it was a great year and a half two years spending all my wages on on vinyl do you at all miss that kind of sense of community and the sense of like having a meeting place for like-minded people that the sort of record shop sort of, uh, you know, entailed? I think you sort of cut your teeth with record shopping. I think there's a, there's a bit of the romance has been lost now by sitting in your bedroom and clicking on a link. You know, it's the way we've gone forward. You know, you can't change that. But there was something about sitting in a record shop and the shop owner knew exactly what to put on at the time and everyone was on the counters and, and as soon as they heard it they'd put their hands up and say I want a copy of that I want a copy of that and you would sit there with a coffee for hours on end with a stack of records and it used to be my you know that was my Saturday afternoon for five six years that was that was what I was doing all the time and it was uh, it's something that I look back on I'm glad that I experienced that where some of the newer generation might not experience that because there's less record shops and less people to push you in that direction. Were the record shops in Maidstone until quite recently or when, when did these stores end up closing down? I'd say I left 2003. I'd say that they probably went to about 2006, 2007. It's almost crazy to think that, you know, record shops, multiple record shops could exist in a town the size of Maidstone. Yeah, we had three at the time. Three, that just shows you the power of, of electronic music in, in, in the late 90s and the early 2000s that... Uh, 
I remember really clearly, I remember it was a record, it was a, the Stardust record had just come out and we must have sold 250 records in one afternoon. You know, I just remember that record being sold and so people were just queuing out the door for that one record. Like, it was it was such a buzz, you know, that, that feeling that, you know, that people were really into the music, really inspiring. And there was less less genres then you know there was we on the wall we would have techno drum and bass and house and that would be it and people would intermingle between them they wouldn't you know they wouldn't care you know it was uh it was it was a really really inspiring and good time i wanted to go back to this mixtape or series of mixtapes <laughs> that you handed to serge uh, do you remember much about them i remember just they were so varied so I would do one like I'd do a warm up one and then I'd do a middle set one and then I'd do a late night one and I'd give him so many different variations because I didn't care what time I played. I just wanted to play. Actually, Serge has found a few of the old tapes which he's converted onto CD and I played really fast, <laughs> really fast back then. But do you think most people were playing a bit faster back then? It's funny because I found a Lee Burridge tape and it must have been like 133, 134 BPM and things have slowed down now a lot more. It's funny because it's almost like the tone of the tracks themselves is roughly the same. It's just five to ten BPM faster. Yeah, and and that's what that was how you played at that time. That was that was the style, and uh, and then you develop, you get older, you slow things down. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Tell me about the first couple of years of your residency. Were you kind of playing weekly, but sort of very regularly for club class? Like, how did you think you uh, sort of developed as a DJ? So originally, uh, when we were at Atomics, I was playing once a month. So, you know, because there was four or five residents in the town. So everyone had their warm up slot. So there was like four, five weeks. And it would vary. Like one month I'd play with Sasha and Digweed. One month I'd play with Andy Weatherall. One month I'd play with Jeremy Healy. You know, it was so varied. Then when the venue got bought and turned into um, apartments, as all good clubs seems to, it seems to happen, and we moved to another club called Icon, which was next door. That's when I became more involved. A lot of the residents had done moved on or left, and I was pretty much playing every week. So I think that's where I developed. One week I'd be warming up, one week I'd be playing in the middle, or one week I'd be playing at the end, because it was back in the sort of early 2000s where a lot of the DJs would double up or triple up in the UK. So they'd come to Maidstone, they'd go to London, then they'd go to Birmingham, and they would do the. So the main guest would do the warm up, you know. And then I think that's where I adapted as a DJ for different situations and, and sort of did my apprenticeship in the club. So um, I guess that was fairly common at the time, wasn't it, for sort of guest or headlining DJs to zip around the country, maybe playing three gigs in an evening. Yeah, I used to go with Lee. I remember he used to do he start in London, then go to Nottingham, and then we'd end up at the Void in Stoke. And uh, yeah, it was it was really common. Were you playing elsewhere off the back of this residency? Did you manage to get other gigs in the UK? I was playing obviously in, in Kent, uh, other places. At, at the time, bar culture was really kicking off. You know, it was like I was saying earlier that pubs used to stop at 11 and used to go to the nightclub. But at the time that I started with club class, you know, I was playing a lot more. Bars had become clubs in a sense, you know, so I was playing a lot of mixture. And I think that sometimes was a bit of a flaw for me because I was going to play in these bars, wanting to play music that I was playing in the clubs, but people weren't feeling it. Mm. And I felt that was quite, uh, it, it really sort of threw me for a while. It really, how I was playing, how I was doing things. Then Danny Newman from Terminals at the time, he said to me, uh, he goes, look, we really like what you're doing in Maidstone. Would you like to come and do something in T2, which was the back room of Terminals, which was... Yeah amazing and uh we we're coming up with names and we came up with this uh this sort of tongue-in-cheek name fandango and uh it was great it was uh i used to have people like loco dice play for me timo mass paul wolford yusuf express two and they would come and play in this room that i don't know if you've ever been there it must have held 150 people it was tiny it was really tiny but there was something about that room that i loved i loved the intimacy i loved that you know there was a regular crowd that came in to see us every month and Danny put his neck on the line for us and he uh, and it was a great residency. It lasted, I think, two years. And then uh, I think, yeah, we moved on to other things. It's probably important to note as well that you got into the label management, label ownership game pretty quickly. And you also released your first uh, music in like 2000, was it? Yeah. Portland Records. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so basically... Rob Cockerton, obviously the guy from Maidstone, who was a big influence on me, said, look, we need to start making some music. 
And I was like, really? And I did IT engineering at school, at college when I left, so I knew a bit about computers and stuff. And there was a guy called Andy Chatterley. I went with Rob because it was quite expensive to go and use a studio. So me, Rob, and my best friend, Matt Blewett, we went up and uh, we made a couple of records together. And then Matt and me went, kept going back and we had this um, partnership called Fanchuli and Blewett. And we did this record called Dockside, which... Um, it sort of wasn't a hit, but it crossed over in the progressive scene. You know, people like Sasha and Digweed were playing it. And I was like, how are we going to release it? And Matt was like, let's start our own label. Let's start a record. And so we called it Portent Records. None of us knew what we were doing at the time. We didn't know we were doing P&D deals. We didn't even know what that was. We, we just didn't have a clue. We were like, we want to get this record out. Here's a DAT. Here's two sides, an A and a B side. Can you put it out for us? And it lasted for a few years until we realized we didn't really know what we were doing on that side of it. And uh, yeah, it was fun. It was interesting that even probably at that time where this sort of idea of the DJ producer maybe was less formed, you know, someone was saying to you, we need to start making music now. Was it kind of important that you had that push? I think, yeah. If it wasn't for Rob, then I don't think at the time I would be where I am now with the music side of things. Um, I didn't think it was important because when I went to see DJs play, it wasn't that I wanted to be the person standing there. I wanted to be able to make them feel what I was feeling, people feel what I was feeling. So it was never like I wanted to be a touring DJ or a superstar DJ or anything like that. All I wanted to do is play at after parties or at house parties with my friends and have that feeling that we're really enjoying ourselves. And that was the main reason why I wanted to become a DJ. The music side, I was never really that interested in doing. I was never felt that it was a part of what I had to do. Because uh, when I saw Rocky and Diesel play, I never knew they were expressed too at the time. Do you see what I mean? So I yeah. never thought that they were putting records out. So I didn't really feel it was necessary. But I ended up doing it. I got the bug for it. I ended up loving making music and, and, and still do now. I mean, did that sort of click into place quite quickly for you? Was it like a love at first sight kind of thing? Or I just remember walking into Andy's studio when I didn't know anything. And just, you know, it was it was just like all these machines and these lights and these sequences and this and just being able to make something and walking away with something that you had created. I think that's what was really amazing. And going home and playing it to my mum. And my mum was like, yeah, it's okay. What, what? I was like, yeah, it's a new record. I'm going to you know, play this weekend. And, and the bit I used to love is the fact that I'd go and get an acetate cut and play it out that weekend. You know, go to Heathman's or Music House and stand in the queue with your dat and wait for it to get cut onto, uh, onto an acetate. Uh, so you wound up working with Andy for, for many years. Yep. In terms of the kind of working dynamic between you, was it one of those classic cases where he was maybe more on the engineering technical side and you were ideas or like how did... A hundred percent. Yeah. No, I'm never, never going to hide the fact that he was so talented in the studio and I learned everything I do now from, from Andy, you know, from now being able to work on the road with a laptop. You know, he was the guy that told me, frequencies he's the guy that told me how to roll the bass off the off a kick and, and and things like that and he was he was a musician you know he wasn't he wasn't a dj so that's how it worked really well with the skylark and the buick project stuff i'd walk in i'd be like we need to create something new and we used to do a lot of sampling together so i'd bring all my record collection up we would sample a lot of the drums and, and then annie would bring the musical element to it and it was a great partnership because andy never really wanted to dj Andy just wanted to uh, just create music yeah, I mean, was that the case for, you know, on a sort of ongoing basis as he was more happy to be like a little bit more in the background? He was really into bands. Yeah. So that's why we ended up taking uh, another project that we had, the Buick project, which was a bit more electronic. We remixed bands like T. Schwartz and uh, Timo Mass and, uh, and Tracy Thorne and things like that. And we developed that into a band. So we did three or four live shows with it. It didn't last very long because what I found is when we had to try and get the, the gigs, I used to have to DJ off the back of it. So I'd have to sort of get the DJ gig. So I'd play and say to the promoter, look, can we do the show as a band? And yeah, and it, it run its course. You know, me and Andy had, I think, 10 great years working together. And then we just uh, we just went in different directions. There was no fallout. There was nothing like that. You know, we're still in touch now. We haven't really seen each other as much because we're we're doing different things. But um you know, like I said, he he was he was definitely the catalyst for for me making music and enjoying making music. I mean, did that form kind of um, 
an idea in your mind of what it meant to be in the studio just in that uh, you know you've obviously gone on to collaborate with lots of people and usually in duos uh, did that kind of you know solidify how it would work for you I mean is that the sort of thing that you kind of naturally gravitated towards like forming these partnerships and those types of arrangements I think so you know from the DJ perspective the partnership thing came through I grew up playing at house parties with my friends DJing with my friends so I was always used to playing with back to back with someone or playing at a house party or playing at a club. So when I started going solo, I found it a bit lonely. I found it sometimes I was traveling on my own and and that goes, you know, the, the project I did with James Abila. For me, that was so much fun because I had like one of my best friends with me on the road and it felt like I did when I first started. And that was one of the reasons why I did it. Same again now with Yoris. Same relationship, same fun aspect of it. And to a certain extent in the studio as well. You know, I, I do love working with other people because... I have got a short attention span and I do like to bounce ideas off other people. So, and it works really well in the studio for me. Just to backtrack very slightly, I think from a personal perspective, I started hearing your name or seeing your name in Mixmag and like, you know, radio DJs like Pete Tong mentioning you. So I wondered in your kind of evolution and kind of getting your name out there, was there like a turning point? Was there like a particular record or a particular gig? Like how did you kind of have that breakthrough? I think there was a couple of things. Um, Gavin Hurley was working at Mixamag in early 2000. And Pete Tong is obviously, he was a Kent boy, you know, from Gravesend. And he was playing the club quite a lot. And at the same time, I did a remix, a Skylark remix of Dancing in the Dark, Fortune 500, which went on to be an Essential New Tune, which at the time, Essential New Tune was quite a big thing because it was, a you know, Radio 1, you know, this is the hottest dance record of the week. And it went in motion with that. Pete got me on the show. I did an Essential mix. Gavin did an article on me, a mix mag at the time. And they, it, it, it sort of snowballed from there, really. And I got a lot of support from everyone, from Steve Lawler, Express 2, even the way through to Fergie at the time who had a radio show. And that's that was the catalyst for uh, for travelling. I ended up finally getting a DJ agency, which at the time was like what you needed to travel or to, to DJ because you could never do it on your own. You know, you needed to be on a DJ agency. And I remember at the time it was an agency called Type and they took me on. It was Seb Fontaine's old agency. I think Craig Richards was on it at the time when it first started. And then it just went on from there and, and on to, uh, to Dovefire when he was in Deep Dish, taking me on to Bullet. And it, it, sort of, it, was, it was all from that one moment where I made the remix, had the Mixmag article and then the Essential Mix. I wanted to talk a bit about the, the sort of middle of that decade because I, I sort of um, look back on it as being quite an interesting time. There's just lots of the DJs you were mentioning, people like Steve Lawler, James Beeler, Youssef and, um, you know, some of these big UK guys. Because mm. I assume by the sort of middle of the decade you were playing in Ibiza a lot and places like that. And then... Um, you know, gradually this wave of German music's coming through and things like Electro House and then eventually Minimal. So I was interested to kind of know how, as like a DJ and a producer, you sort of, you know, responded to that. You know, how did you interpret these things coming through? Did you like assimilate lots of the sounds? Like, you know, the landscape like really shifted around mm -hmm. the middle of the decade. I think for me, the big the big moment was when I joined Bullet with Deep Dish and I was touring. A lot of the UK DJs were doing like double ups and triple ups in the UK and luckily Ali and Sharam took me out of the UK to travel the States. So in my early days, I was traveling around the world a lot where a lot of the UK DJs were based in the UK. So I was playing Italy, Spain and South America, North America, and a lot of the UK DJs weren't getting out of the UK. Mm. So I got a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge for the music, what was going on around the world. So it wasn't just the UK scene that was in my head. I saw what was going on in Germany. I saw what was going on. But that period you were talking about, the minimal stage, I think that was for me, the lost stage in my career, the stage in my career where I didn't know what was going on. I didn't really know how to to replicate what was going on at that time. So I stuck to what I was doing and I was playing quite housey at the time and it wasn't the fashionable sound. It wasn't a sound that people really were into. They were into, like you're saying, the minimal stuff. I remember Guido Snyder at the time being like a, a real superstar and, and in, in that scene and 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 I never really tried to emulate it. I never tried to copy it. I just carried on doing what I was doing because there was no point. There was no point in trying to be that sound because th that, that German sound had it covered. You know, there was no, you know, I didn't want to try and replicate something and someone go, well, he just sounds like a bad version of that. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that must be, um, it must be a difficult decision for 
any artist sort of facing up to you know a reality where if you're going to stick to your guns you know you have the sense that maybe the style of music that you're pushing might not come back around for a few years i know and it's but the the, the thing is it's like i say it's rather just get on with what you're doing if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out if it, it comes back round, and luckily for me you know music evolves quickly and it and it, and it carries on and it's sort of if you've got it's hard to explain but if you if you really believe in what you're doing i think that it works out for you in the end mm, sure. i think that hopefully you know i love this i love this music scene. i love the scene i love everything about it, and i love the fact that you can reinvent yourself as much as you as much as you want we, i mean were you personally interested in like the the german minimal and you know sounds of that ilk that were coming through were you getting a lot out of that uh, there'd be certain records that i'd love like certain artists like gabriel nando that i'd pull out and like i said guido snyder and a few of the guys uh, a lot of it i found very linear at the time i didn't you know i come from the disco background from listening to disco funk records and real groovy records so there was there was not too much of that in the records at the time and not a lot of soul it was uh it was a part of the scene that i was a little bit lost with i didn't really know what was going on at the time but london was loving it london was swallowing it up and and and, and really enjoying that sound and like I said, I wasn't really based in the UK at the time. I was traveling a lot around Europe and, and with Deep Dish, so I was I was doing my own thing. Did it impact on your gigs and stuff like that? Was it did things become a bit quieter around that time? Yeah, definitely. It was it was crazy because you wouldn't get a lot of German DJs in the UK, and then you would all of a sudden you would have the the floodgates opened, and you would have Italians and Germans and Spanish people coming and playing. And you were pushed to the back of the queue, but there's no point in being bitter about it or being. It was just the way that it's what people wanted. So you can't you can't dictate what happens in music. Yeah, but I guess it was sort of around this time and in this climate that you started Saved, which was like your next label venture. Your brother Mark, he was involved from the start. Is that right? Well, Mark went to university in two thousand and four or two thousand and five to study music engineering. So he had a, he had an input into it, but it was me and Andy that run the business and the music side of it. When he left university, and me and Andy separated working together with the label and with the production side mark came in and pretty much helped me get it back to where i wanted it to be because when the label started it was an outlet for our music like skylark and buick project so we put our first record out chancer and it had a great response we did a, we sold a lot of units of it and then we're like what's next so we had to make another record for the label and then what happened was people started getting into the label and Bands like Audiofly, Paul Wolford, James Talk were sending us demos at the time. And I, and I was playing these at my gigs and I was like, I really want to release this music. It's incredible. So then we shifted the, the playing field a bit and we started releasing other people's music. Then One Plus One came along, which was a tour that me and James Abila did where we travelled around the world and played back to back for about eight months. And I took my foot off the gas with the label. And I remember coming back off that tour and we weren't. There was no love for the label. There was no records being sold. You know, the release schedule was all over the shop. And I was like, this is something that we need to fix. You know, you need to, for people to buy into a label, they need to know how much you love that label and how much you care about that label. That's when I got Mark involved and Mark and me and Mark, you know, I owe a lot to Mark on this one. He, he, he turned it around. He really helped me turn that label around to something that we believed in. Like we would... We were never a techno label, we were never a house label, we were never a deep house label. We were just a label, an outlet of music that I wanted to put out and, want, and I had to have to play the record to put it out. I wouldn't put, put a record out that I wouldn't play, which I think is really important. And yeah, we managed to get it back on track. You know, we, we started doing parties together. We, yeah, we're having a lot of fun and, and now it's that period has paid off to where we are now. You know, we've got to 110 releases, I think now, 114, and and it's so much fun. It's like, it's my labour of love. You know, there's never been a, you know, a lot of money in a record label, as people know. It was just more of like an achievement, really. Mm, sure. Uh, was that more of a, like a, a shift in the A&R policy, would you say, when you sort of rebooted the label? Because obviously there was like a influx of producers from you know different European countries and stuff like that. I think that there was just a lot more care and attention, right? I think that from the ground up, from everything, from the artwork to how we did um, the releases, how we had the programming to the mastering. We found this great mastering company in Germany called Time Tools, and we haven't stopped using them since. I think Martin Butchich used to be there originally. And, you know, we've got these great partnerships and we haven't left them since that moment because we wanted to still create. Obviously, we've had different distributors because, sadly, vinyl distribution prices shut down over the time. You know, over the last 10 years, they've been shutting down. So we're in a good place now. Would you say it's more difficult these days to run a label? 
I think that the access to run a label is a lot easier with the digital side. You know, we started with just vinyl only. When we, the label first started, it was vinyl only. And then obviously with the shift in the way people bought electronic music, we had to do the download thing and we had to do this. And I think now it's a lot easier to set up. But I do think that people buy into labels that they see that have care and attention. I really do believe in that. Like my some of my favourite labels that I buy, I know that they've got a good team of people working behind it. The record they put out is quite, the music they put out is quality. There's a story behind it. Yeah, I think it's really important to do that. I'd like how important this nurturing and sort of discovering new talent been for the label down the years, would you say? Really important, you know, because everyone can put out a big record and it's nice to have a big artist on your label, obviously, because it helps people come to your label. But, you know, we've had people like Paul Walford, Audiofly in the early days, Suban, who's gone on to do great things now. When it comes along, it's great. You know, it's great because they're they're new, they're green, they don't know what's going on. They like they've got this record. I really want to put it out and saved, and it's nice because they want to put it out on your label. You know, a lot of the time it's it's hard to tell people that it's a good record. You've got to be constructive, but it's not right for the label. You sure. know, and I don't want to because I've done it. I've given I've done a track and I finished it this year again. This would be perfect for such and such, and they turn around and go no, and you're like oh okay. But it, you know, if you do it in a constructive way, because. You've got to tell the reasons why you don't want to sign the record because you don't think it fits or you're not going to play it. But please keep sending me more music because there'll be that one record that really fits what we do. Yeah, for sure. Are you in a position where you're able to, you know, sift through demos and these sorts of things, like have feedback with artists? Like what's the sort of, um, you know, that, approach? That, that was the thing with Mark. Yeah. Mark was, obviously I was touring a lot. Mark used to send me the records. I used to play them or not play them. We used to have a meeting on a Monday or a Tuesday, go for all the demos and reply to everyone. It's difficult. We get less records now, which is nice, but for more people that we, we've got contact with or we know about or we've got our radar on, um, it makes things a lot easier. But, um, yeah, we try and we try to be as constructive as possible when we don't take a record on. I wanted to ask a little bit about the some of the collaborations that have wound up on the label. You mean you've ended up working with some, like, really sort of notable, like, US producers. And I just really wanted to ask, like, how do these things usually end up coming to fruition? You know, is it something that's based on, like, a personal relationship? Do you just respect their music and picture collaboration? Like, you know, what's what's usually the case? Um, you know, it's DJs and producers are so temperamental in general. So if you've got a plan... It's never going to go that way. Well, you know, yeah, it's part of the reason I ask because, yeah. you know, you, there is a quite a long yeah. list and it's an impressive list. So. It's it's on personal relationship. Yeah, it's, it's all about the personal relationship and the mutual respect for each other. And I think that's that's the case for me. It's uh, the record that me and Yoris did. You know, we were friends for three or four years before. And uh, I know that if we weren't, we didn't have that mutual respect for each other or we didn't have that friendship. I don't think that record would have been made. But then there's also certain situations where you are really close with someone and you never get the record done. So it's it, it can go both ways. But I love collaborating. I love the, uh, the, the input from two different people to create something. And I think the people that buy the record can hear your sound and their sound and, and, and think that that's the important part of it. And um, it's down to personal relationships, I think, because there's so many people that I've wanted to work with that I know that's never going to happen because we're not in the same circles or we're not in the same in not sometimes as well you want to work with people that are slightly off the beaten track like I remember trying to get Beth Gibbons from Portishead to do a vocal for me and I think I was reaching out too far for that one you know I was like sending a demo send a demos and there was never a response so but you know if you don't try you, you never know what's going to happen yeah you got to aim for it surely. yeah yeah so I guess um you would class Eurus as your maybe closest collaborator these days i mean you guys are djing a lot together and you had like a first abitha stint last year yeah he's someone actually obviously i think i knew about him before he knew about me he did this incredible album on green i think it was like 2006 and it was in, it was just one of the best albums i'd ever heard my friend ramon in miami gave it to me and i would listen to every single track i was playing every single track and i was like this, this guy's got to do a remix for saved i want him on saved so he did a remix from my first album with skylark and he sent it to me and i was like wow this is unbelievable and then we were on tour in australia together and i was like i'm in sydney and he's like, i'm in sydney so we went and had a drink together hung out had a lot of musical you know, we we met in the middle. We had a lot of similarities yeah, with what we liked. Grounds, yeah, yeah, and 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 he's you know he's a top guy. You know, we had he's he hasn't got an ego. He's just a chilled out guy, and he's super nice. And 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 that was what how we've 
created the friendship you know we've got similarities now we you know we've both got a kid and and we both on the same sort of playing field and we and, and that and that's what came to do la familia you know we were like you know let's let's just do this let's let's have fun you know it's less pressure with two of you as well it's it's always nice to have someone who's got your back and he plays amazing music so yeah i guess over the years if you sort of chart your respective arcs you know when i first was getting into him he was maybe playing more techno and like i knew you as a house guy was like maybe he slowed down and come more towards house you mm. become maybe a little bit more techno and sort of it's it's funny because someone was saying that the other day they were like uh yoris plays house in my head i think he plays techno yeah because i still have this image of yoris playing techno but like you think things change and uh, people you know he's done that for the first 10 years of his career while i was doing something else for the first 10 years of my career now musically i maybe i want to do something different but when we play together, we meet in the middle, which which well, I really love. You know, he plays certain records. I'm like, what is that? And vice versa. And um, but yeah, in my head, I still still think he's a techno DJ. So you did the um, string of dates, uh, Ashwire and Ibiza. Yeah. How did that go? Really well, really well. We felt, you know, Ashwire gets a lot of flack for being a commercial club as such. But for me, it's just an outdoor venue. I don't look at it as a commercial club because, you know, you walk into that club, you play the music, you're dictating to the crowd then you can do what you want there. So for us, it was nice because we didn't have a lot of underground or whatever you want to call it, house nights there. It was a lot of it was more EDM or commercial music. So this is even less so this year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, because yeah, uh, yeah, a couple of the DJs left their nights yeah. there. And uh, the only other one was Ants, I think, on the Saturday night. So we were resident, me and Joris were both resident for Ants at the time. And I, I remember doing the first one for them when they started last, not the season, just gone the season before. And at the end of the season, me and Yoris did a couple together and Jan, the owner, was um, like, we need to do more of these. And I said, you know, it'd be great, Jan, if we could start something on our own, you know, something separate to, to Ants and do our own thing. So we went away, came up with a concept, La Familia, because we felt it was very much what we were about, you know, bringing people together, having fun. The DJs that we'd invite were friends, you know, it was about creating that vibe. And uh, he was like, yeah, let's do let's do eight shows next year. So, and it went really well and we had a lot of fun and we're just deciding what we're going to do this summer. We haven't got any plans yet. We're sort of weighing up what we should do. And it was great. You know, actually for me, it felt, I've been going to Ibiza since 96 as a punter. You know, I remember going to one of them club 1830s holidays with, with my friends and going to, you know, early days. And, and I've always said when I played, I'd love to, to end up having a night in Ibiza. Mm. Yeah, it was sort of a, a dream come true for me really last year. It was, you know, it was really risky because things fell so quickly in Ibiza. You know, you really got to, it's not just about the music. It's not about the DJ. It's about everything. It's about the promotion, about who's doing what. And, and it, it's a real team effort. It's not just a one man show. It's really about, like, I remember walking away from there and thanking about 30 people because that's, they all deserve credit because it's not just me and Yoris standing up there. You know, it's everything from the, the kids on the beach giving the flyers out to the bar staff to people, you know, running around helping out. And uh, Yeah, and I guess as well, you're operating in what's a more saturated marketplace than it's ever been. You know, like thinking about the late 90s, the time you were, you mentioned and you had like one party per night that pretty it, much and it? now it's probably three or four options uh, per day that's the thing I, I remember i had my schedule plan when i used to go to ibiza when i was sort of 17 18 and i used to know what was on a thursday what was on a wednesday renaissance was a passion on a friday you know i had all these things planned in my head who i wanted to go and see what djs now you land and there's there is five or six good parties on that you want to go to Mm, sure. I mean, do you still feel like it's important for you as an artist to maintain a presence in Ibiza? And do you see that being the case for kind of years to come? I think, you know, with Ibiza, you get two sides to it. You get, oh, it's just a commercial island. It's this, it's that, it's that. But the reason why I love it is because I have a lot of fun when I play there. I really generally enjoy playing there. You know, I was resident for Cole Cox at Space on Tuesdays and I just walk away on a Wednesday, getting on the plane, I'll be smiling. I'll be like, that was incredible. I generally had a great night. I'm not doing it because it's Ibiza or because it's going to help prolong my career for the next five years. I'm doing it because I, I, I love doing it. And the same with La Familia. It was just so much fun and it inspires you. It makes you, you think, you know what, next gig's going to be even better. The gig after is going to be even better. You go to the studio, you write something you're really inspired by. And it's just, it's just it's a catalyst for for me. Yeah, I see. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, mix CDs. You've released a fair few over the years for some really notable brands like Global Underground, Defected most recently, mm. Balance in the Past. This was kind of a topic of conversation for us on RA last year. We were felt like we were discussing on a number of occasions like the ongoing like viability of the format. You know, as someone who 
thinks obviously a lot about these projects and takes a lot of time over these projects and has been like very active in this um, particular format. Where do you see like the future of the mix CD? Do you think it's something that's going to be around for a few more more years? It's hard because when I was growing up at the time, Global Underground was for me the mecca of where I wanted to be on a on a mix CD. If I got if I knew if I did a Global Underground CD at the time, people would listen to it people would want to hear it. So for me, I hold it in such high regard, the mix, mix CD, you know, for me, it takes six to eight months to do a mix CD because I'm so nervous. So I need it to be exactly right. Unfortunately, now with podcasts and with mixes being given away on SoundCloud so so easily and, and, and my mix is, you know, illegally sometimes recorded and also given away, it's, um, it's quite hard to, for it to stand for value. But what I will say is with, I did the last Defected in the House CD, I felt that at the time when you're spending six months on a project, it's like doing an album project. So really the care and attention is down to the care and attention, how much you spend doing the album. So for me, I think there's value in it because I've really sat there and worked this mix, you know, and edited it and, and done certain things to it. But maybe I could have probably done a mix from a club and it might have got more more respect from the kids because it's on a free podcast. I don't know. It's, it's a grey area for me. I've got no answer for that. But for me, I'll keep doing them. Yeah, because sure. Because I'm passionate about them. I, lo I love doing them. You know, it, it causes me a lot of stress because I'm really worried and thinking about it. But at the same time, it's what I grew up on. And it's something that I'd like to keep doing. Yeah, I mean, you actually framed that in a way that I was going to ask you because you released an album as Skylark in like 2007. But, you know, you haven't been like an artist album kind of guy so you know has the mix cd ended up performing this function for you in a way 100 percent. like if you asked me a question would you say you're a dj or a producer i'd say a dj that's what i am i love djing i love traveling and i love but i also do like the element of making music as well i love creating something but i felt that the mix cd was my artist album you know that was what i was doing on a week-to-week -week basis traveling playing you know certain records work really well together i'd remember them that's going on the mix CD. That's why I'd want to put on there so people can remember the moments when they did come and see me play. So yeah, it is my artist album. Have you got quite a well-established process for putting them together now, would you say? I'd, I'd say that it's a format that I do of... Um, of I, have, I have a little folder on my desktop and it's called Mix CD and it's certain records that I, I know that I would want to put on a mix CD if I eventually did one in a couple of years' time. Oh, right, so you're keeping that going. Yeah, so yeah I, okay. I'm, 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 I've never stopped. I've done it, yeah. started it since the first Renaissance album I did. Wow, okay. And I just leave it there, and then when I come back to it, we come to the CD, there'll be 600 records collected over the two or three years, and then the new selection of records, which are at the moment, so we'd end up with like maybe a 1,000 records in this, in this crate, and then it goes down and goes down and goes down and goes down and goes down until you've got the 60 tracks you want to put on the two CDs. What would you say is like the thread that connects those tracks? Are there certain qualities that you think um, end up suiting the vibe that you're going for? I've always had the same format with the CDs. The first CD is somewhere is a CD that I want people to be able to listen to an after party or a barbecue or in the car. All them them qualities I want in that CD. I want musicality. I want I want it to sound timeless, like longevity. You know, longevity. Or sorry, I don't know how to say. Did <laughs> I want to get the timeless? the timeless feel to it. So you're going to look back at the CD in 10 years time and think this still sounds good now. Like I do with a lot of the CDs that I listen to, like Danny Howe's Global Underground from Miami. I listen to CD one all the time. I'm like, that sounds good now as it did back then. The Tyrant CD, the first one, you're like, you know, you wouldn't even know when that was made, what era or what, what, what year that was made in. It was so good. Yeah. I mean, I guess by their very nature, they're hanging around longer. Yeah. And that was always the idea with CD one. And then CD two, I always wanted to try and transform what I do in the club onto the CD. I've had that sort of perspective with the CDs till now to the latest one. So um, I want to talk a bit about the social, which is a kind of venture you started in 2013. Mm. I have to say I was surprised when this was kind of announced because, you know, in the modern world of very busy uh, traveling DJs and producers, the idea of like starting a festival seems like madness in a way. What kind of led to this decision for you? Basically, you know, I, I do a lot of stuff in Maidstone anyway with Saved. I've done it for the last sort of five, six years. And it's I look at it as my home, you know, even though I don't actually live in Maidstone anymore, I live in the outskirts. I look at it as the place that gave me my chance to DJ. 
you know it's the place that I love going back to and 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 playing um and we had so many good guests play for us and we had this little tiny alleyway and it was uh basically blocked the alleyway off and we'd have people like Cole Cox come and play uh, Luciano Locadice Marco Carolla we had some really great guests and I felt that let's do something a little bit bigger let's do something a bit more more sort of festival style I wouldn't say it's a big it's, you know it's a smaller festival I think the first year we had like five and a half thousand people but what I wanted to do was a location that actually when Radio 1 did One Big Weekend in 2007, the whole point of doing One Big Weekend was to go to not main cities, but smaller towns and try and leave a musical legacy, you know, try mm. and leave something there. And we didn't do anything in Mason after that. Radio 1 came, we had some great bands play and that was it. You know, it was, you know, back to bar culture and, and, and clubs and there was nothing really else going on. And Kent hasn't really got a big festival or an electronic festival. So I felt that 2003, I felt, right, I've got a good team. I've got a partner called Luke who looks after the logistics, the security, the, the you know, all the back end stuff that I didn't really know about. And then I looked after the musical side of it. And it was a great, it's a great partnership. Also have another guy called Joe who's on board that takes care of all the promotion and looks after. So we had a really nice team and it felt right. So that's why we did it. So basically it was me cold calling my friends on the phone saying, can you come and play my festival? Yeah, <laughs> Which sure. I feel bad about because it's, you know, it's sort of you're, you're going around the houses to try and get them. But at the same time, you're sort of saying, look, I'd, it wasn't never in my head as a money-making scheme. And we, we still to this day haven't made a penny from it. It was more the case that I wanted to to leave something in the town and, and, and do like a, a festival, you know, because if you think of Maystone, you'd probably think of doing something very commercial in your head, you know, to, we'd have to do pop stuff and things like that. But I didn't. I went in the first year we went in, we did uh, Loco Dice Luciano, Guy Gerber, Seth Troxler, you know, not household names in a in a rural town. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was to us, they are, you know, they're, you know, in our scene, they're gods, aren't they? But, and then on the Sunday, I was like, let's do something even different. Let's do something that really influenced me when I was younger. So I did Earth, Wind and Fire, Sister Sledge, Brand New Heavies. Because I wanted to cater for the families on the Sunday because I had a kid. And I wanted to do something for them. And we had this huge structure. So I thought, you know, this, we may as well use it. Let's not waste it. So, yeah, the Saturday we had a rave and the Sunday we had a, a disco. Uh, did it feel <laughs> like it was kind of well received? Did you uh, sort of achieve the aim you were going for? With, yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, we had the council ring us up on Monday who said we had no problems, we're really happy. The police were like, we're really happy with what you did. So let's do year two. You know, we obviously, we lost a lot of money in the first year, but I felt, you know what, this, we knew this was going to be a long-term project. We knew that it was going to be something that's going to take five or six years to really establish ourselves. And then we did this year. We built another stage. We added uh, another arena. Um, we had other people join us this year, like Nina Kravitz, uh, Dixon, Arme, Teeny. And then we kept Seth and uh, and Guy because they were there at the start as well. So we felt that we needed that. And then we also added uh, Cole Cox to it, which we knew would be a great, a big pull for us. The festival was amazing. You know, it went great. We had a really bad problem um, with the bars, which was a real thing. People were queuing for like 40 minutes to get a drink. And I was going around going, what's going on? Why aren't people getting served? They're, they're, they're angry. They're not happy. And the reason we did the festival was to try and fix all the things that where I had been playing festivals in the past was to try and fix all the bad qualities of this festival. And it then came out that Heineken gave us this equipment that was 40 Luckily, we tried to, you know, we apologised to everyone. You know, it's not, you know, I didn't want it to happen. And um, we basically apologised to everyone. Heineken put out a statement and said, look, guys, it's our fault. It's not the social's fault. That kind of helped. But what we did in turn is that everyone bought a ticket. We offered them a ticket for £15 instead of £50. So I felt that we were trying to, you know, give back something and try and say sorry because I didn't want it to be like another festival that goes, well, it's tough luck, you didn't get a drink. Yeah, you know, sure. I wanted to try and and, and, and give uh, to say sorry and Heineken worked with us on that and uh, and now we've got year three coming up this year. For most people or lots of people who come from small towns, like, you know, when they've reached the age of 18, they kind of just want to get the hell out of there and, you know, never think about it again. But it's interesting to me that you have retained such close ties with your hometown and, you know, really want to give something back in a way. Why do you think this has become so important to you? I never lived in a big city, really. I never lived in London. I never lived, you know, I never moved to a bigger city. I always stayed rural because I'm still friends with my school friends now. And it's a bit like James Abiel, actually. We had the same sort of thing where he still lives in Southampton. He's still got all his school friends around him. He loves doing parties in Southampton. You know, he, he still lives there. And, it, and and for me, it was the same case. It was family. You know, I had my family there. I had all my best friends there. And I just felt... And it was the town that gave me that break. It was the town that gave me that chance. And it's not like... 
trying to be like a local hero or something like that. I'm just saying I generally enjoy playing in my hometown. One, it's 10 minutes to my bed <laughs> as you get older. And two, that people really love it. They really generally love it. You know, they were like, people still now are going, oh, we can't wait for the social this year. And that gives me a sense of excitement. It gives me that I really want to do it. Sod it if we lose another pile of money or whatever. It doesn't really matter. I like not to, but at the same time. And do you know what? Seeing this year where we had nearly eight and a half thousand people there for good music that's what makes me really happy it was really good everyone played amazing and i was just walking around smiling the bar thing obviously threw me a bit but the music and the atmosphere and all the djs that played for me you know it's it's it was just amazing so i'm still smiling now thinking about it and that's what puts me on to do it next year or this year <laughs> <laughs>